0: Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. We are continuing with Russia and revolution as we creep towards the end of the book. We're almost finished the second last chapter, after which there'll be a conclusion about the book as a whole. This chapter is dealing with continued fallout of the new economic policy the Bolsheviks adopted to try and course correct in a country that was having economic issues even before they came to power, as we continue to look at what society and culture looked like in these changing conditions. Cultural Revolution. Alexander Bogdanov, author of the aforementioned sci-fi novels, had been the only serious competitor to Lenin for leadership of the Bolshevik faction after 1905. Footnote 96. Yet his ideas were distinctive in many respects. He believed that the working class must advance to socialism along three paths, the political, economic and cultural. And socialism entailed the creation of a proletarian culture that would supersede the bourgeois culture of the past. A week before the October seizure of power in 1917, a conference of proletarian organisations of culture and enlightenment met and showed itself to be influenced by Bogdanov's ideas. Its resolution explained, The proletarian movement for culture and enlightenment must be permeated by a militant socialist spirit. Its aim is to arm the working class with knowledge, organize its artistic feeling so as to succeed in its titanic struggle for a new social system. The conference proposes that in science, as in art, the proletariat must display autonomous creativity, but to do this it must master the whole cultural legacy of the past and the present. The proletariat willingly accepts the cooperation of socialist and even non-party intellectuals in cultural and educational affairs, but it considers that a critical attitude is necessary towards the fruits of the old culture, which it apprehends not as a pupil, but as a creator, summoned to erect bright new buildings out of old stones. Footnote 97 During the Civil War, a protel cult movement blossomed, which sponsored a vast array of literary, artistic, theatrical, musical, scientific and sporting activities that involved millions of people doing these things for themselves. The movement was diverse and eclectic, but was loosely divided between those concerned with disseminating the rudimentary blessings of culture among the broad masses and those concerned with training a worker elite to forge a radically new proletarian culture. Neither Lenin (coughs) nor Lunacharsky, the Commissar of Enlightenment and brother-in-law of Bogdanov, had much enthusiasm for this concept of proletarian culture, seeing it as slighting the culture of the past. They argued the paramount task was one of raising the cultural level of the masses to the point where they could appropriate humanity's cultural heritage. At the end of 1920, a combination of financial difficulties and internal wrangles combined with Lenin's animus and the party's increasing intolerance of autonomous organisations, led to Protelkult being subordinated to the Commissariat of Enlightenment. In 1921, following victory on the military and political fronts, Lenin stole Bogdanov's thunder by declaring that culture was now the third front of revolutionary activity. In his last writings, he outlined a conception of cultural revolution as a prerequisite for Russia's transition to socialism. Compared with that of Bogdanov, his conception was rather modest and did not differ radically from the project of the 19th century intelligentsia to raise the cultural level of the people. In a society steeped in Asiatic backwardness, Lenin argued, the propagation of literacy, solid work habits, and the application of science and technology were vital to socialist construction. Footnote 98. Culturedness could embrace anything from punctuality, clean fingernails, and even having a basic knowledge of biology, to carrying out one's trade union duties efficiently. Its antithesis, lack of culture, was an equally capacious notion, encompassing anything from poor personal hygiene, drunkenness, or ignorance of Marxism, to going to church. Its multifarious connotations were neatly captured in a notice pinned on the wharf in Samara, Do not throw rubbish about. Do not strike a match near the oil pumps. Do not spit sunflower seeds, and do not swear or use bad language. Footnote 99 Culturedness had a purposeful character and was synonymous with striving to live according to the requirements and values of the emerging socialist order. Other Bolshevik leaders supported a more grandiose conception of cultural revolution. Bukharin averred that it meant nothing less than a, quote, Revolution in human characteristics, in habits, feelings, and desires, in way of life and culture. End quote. In this radical conception of cultural revolution, the aim was nothing less than the creation of a new Soviet person through the total transformation of daily life. In Bolshevik eyes, literacy was the precondition for full and active participation in socialist society and they invested much energy and imagination into bringing the written word to the people. See figure 7.6. Footnote 100. Between 1920 and 1928, 8.2 million attended literacy school, of whom 70% completed the course. The danger of illiteracy was illustrated in a widely circulated poster that depicted a blindfolded peasant in past shoes approaching the edge of a cliff with hands outstretched. Initially resources were concentrated on the Red Army, where soldiers had little choice but to attend literacy classes, but demobilization, combined with the swinging cuts in public expenditure, led to a dispersal of energies. By 1926-27, there were just over 16,000 reading rooms in the countryside, equivalent to between two and five per township, which provided peasants with books and newspapers. They proved popular. Footnote 101: The one in Enangsko settlement in Vologda had 4,315 books and... In addition, it arranged study circles, exhibitions, performances and film shows. The head of the Reading Hut, who was always a party member in receipt of the same low salary as a village school teacher, was expected to promote government campaigns, including the Cult of Lenin. In villages where the party did not have the resources to set up reading huts, it created red corners. Surveys of the activities of the reading huts showed that readers preferred fiction to political and scientific material, and periodically there were campaigns to remove trash from the libraries. This sometimes led to excesses, as when the Bolshaya Kenshinskaya village reading room in Penza threw out the novels of Dostoevsky. Footnote 102 The 1926 census showed that 51% of the population was literate, compared with 23% in 1897. This was an impressive result, yet it concealed some disquieting anomalies. Whereas more than three-quarters of the urban population over the age of nine were literate, only 45% of the rural population were. And whereas two-thirds of men could read only 37% of women could. Moreover, in the Central Asian republics, such as Turkmenistan, 97% of the population was illiterate. The educational level of those who went through the crash literacy programs was, obviously, not very high. When 64 soldiers were asked in 1923 to read an article in Pravda about the assassination of the Soviet ambassador Václav Vorovsky in Lausanne, none could explain the title The Impertinence of Killers, footnote 103. Yet the campaign to liquidate illiteracy awoke a thirst for knowledge on the part of newly literate readers. A poor peasant sent a letter to the peasant newspaper. Quote, Send me a list of books published on the following subjects because I am interested in everything. Chemistry, science, technology, the planets, the sun, the earth, the planet Mars, world maps, books on aviation, the number of planes we possess, the number of enemies the Socialist Republic has, books on comets, stars, water, the earth and sky. Footnote 104. As children of the Enlightenment, who had embraced a militant 19th century materialism, the Bolsheviks believed in disseminating science and rationality to bring about liberation from religion and superstition, and to enhance human autonomy. They sought to inculcate a materialist worldview through schools, health propaganda, the promotion of modern agricultural practices, and anti religious propaganda. In 1923, the Twelfth Congress of the RKPB stated that, quote, systematic work must be done to create in the new generation a serious urge to master science and technology. Footnote 105. In 1926, the Program for Workers' Anti-Religious Circles explained, quote, Natural phenomena have a law-governed character and are independent of the desires of man as human society studies the laws of nature it subordinates natural phenomena to its will End quote. footnote 106 through lectures exhibitions pamphlets and primary schools different agencies set about explaining phenomena such as thunder and lightning germs and basic hygiene electricity and the internal combustion engine. For the more curious, popular books and pamphlets were published on a gamut of topics from astronomy, evolution, biology and geography to agronomy. In the mid-1920s, a vigorous debate got underway about the transformation of daily life along socialist lines. Footnote 107. This centred on the fraught issue of the relationship of the personal to the political, already touched on above in the section on the family and gender. One of the most radical aspirations generated by the revolution was the desire to live collectively, to share things in common. Students were in the forefront of this movement to live the new way of life – sharing accommodation and domestic labour, and generally seeking to overcome individualism. But during the 1920s such communes spread beyond student groups. By the time of the first five-year plan, young workers were engaged in forming production communes, which engaged in shock work and socialist competition in an effort to revolutionise the culture of the workplace. Footnote 108. Experimental urban planners dreamed of new forms of housing and patterns of urban spatial organisation, using concrete and steel with form following function. The architect, Mosai Ginsberg construed the communal house as a social condenser, designed to quote, encourage dynamic coexistence of activities and to generate through their interference Unprecedented events. End quote. Footnote one o nine. The architect N. S. Kuzmin, intent on achieving the quote, scientific organization of daily life, end quote, designed a super commune for five thousand one hundred and forty miners in Anzero- Sudzinsk. Footnote one ten. Much of this utopian imagining remained confined to the drawing board. But the 1920s saw enthusiasm for the idea of the commune reach its apogee. In the countryside, there were a couple of thousand agrarian communes by the end of the civil war. Most were very small, but some, such as the Novara-Pinskaya commune in Samara, grew to embrace 8,500 members and 77,200 hectares. These communes owned land, livestock and equipment in common and shared the surplus equally, according to the number of eaters rather than labourers in a household. Such communes were more traditional in their inspiration than the residential and workplace communes of the cities, often inspired by religious rather than Marxist values especially among non-Orthodox Christian denominations and disciples of Tolstoy. Footnote 111. At a time when official policies seemed to benefit class enemies, progress to socialism was seen as peculiarly dependent on individual behavior in the private sphere. As Krupskaya told the Komsomol Congress in 1924, quote, we must strive to bind our private life to the struggle for, and construction of, communism. Earlier, it was perhaps not clear to us that the division between private life and public life sooner or later leads to the betrayal of communism. From this perspective, aspects of daily life as various as dress, hygiene, personal morality, leisure, and use of language took on political significance. Was it acceptable for a communist to swear? The answer was clearly no, since swearing was the symbol of the moral degradation of the common people. Footnote 112. Soviet factories manufactured lipstick and Soviet publishing houses put out fashion magazines, but was wearing lipstick or reading about Western fashion compatible with socialism? Most participants said no, for wearing makeup or fashionable clothes implied an individualist concern with looking good that was not compatible with collectivist values. Yet the Bolsheviks never eschewed bourgeois values in their entirety. The cultured Soviet citizen was expected to be punctual, efficient, orderly, and neat in appearance but too keen an interest in good manners, nice clothes, or tidy hair laid one open to the charge of being petty bourgeois, or philistine. The project to bring about a cultural revolution met deepest resistance in respect of the key rites of passage of birth, marriage, and death. Since the rituals that marked these were all religious, the regime encouraged people to undergo civil registrations of births, weddings, and funerals. In the cities, there was a rather rapid move away from getting married in church. In Moscow, not typical of course, by 1928 only 11.8% of marriages were in church. Footnote 113 Nevertheless, in the countryside, a church wedding was a focus of community solidarity, and rural communists were often censured for getting married in church. Sometimes an attempt was made to graft the symbols of the new society onto the rituals of the old. Quote, "A communist gets married in a village. All the wedding procession goes to church. In front is the red flag with the inscription: Workers of the world unite." Next come the icons, then comes the bridegroom with a red sash on his chest." Quote. The move away from baptizing one's children was much slower. By 1928, the percentage of children in Moscow who were baptized had fallen to 57.8%, though again, the percentage was much higher outside the capital. Efforts to create an alternative to baptism centered on a ritual of Octobering, which was only ever popular among a tiny minority. In July 1924, for example, a meeting of the Kremenshug Wood Turner's Union organized a red baptism of a girl who was given the name Ninel, Lenin spelled backwards. In a ceremony that began with an exaltation of conscience and reason against the ''absurd religious rituals which befog and oppress the working class'' and which culminated with the child being given a badge inscribed ''study, steal yourself, struggle and unite''. Even to communists and Komsomol members, however, such rituals were not especially attractive. More attractive was giving a revolutionary name to one's offspring, instead of a Christian name. Names such as Spark, Rebel, Electricity bespoke modernity and revolutionary fervor. Footnote 114 Least popular of all were official attempts to promote civil funerals, In Moscow in 1928, 65.7% of people still opted for a church funeral. And in the countryside, this was almost universal. Indeed, as late as the 1950s, fewer than half of all Soviet funerals were secular. The abandonment of traditional rituals of mourning and commemoration threatened to leave the community impoverished, and the bereaved deprived of customary ways of coping with grief. Footnote 115. Civic funerals, moreover, struck a blow at any idea that the deceased might be destined for a life beyond the grave. Even less popular was cremation, which was promoted as a clean, economical way of death, but no more than a handful of crematoria were actually built. All of these life-cycle transitions were marked by ancient religious rituals with deep cultural and emotional resonance, and the Bolsheviks struggled to find secular substitutes for them. The ersatz socialist rituals reflected the lack in official ideology of a sense of existential drama and transcendence. Peasants missed the mystery, joy, and ebullience of ritual, the dancing at weddings, the plates of food for the dead. Yet change was underway in the countryside, and the younger generation responded, rather positively, to cultural revolution as it was construed in the NEP years. Seeing the traditional way of life as superannuated, many young peasants looked to the cities and yearned to become cultured. Quote, Dressed in a cultured fashion, I went to the cinema. I really wanted to visit the park of culture and rest, but I didn't have enough money. By 1928, over 12% of letters to the peasant newspaper concerned issues of civilization and the backwardness of peasant life. Typically, such letters began I am a dark peasant. I write to you from a godforsaken place. Lying on a dark stove, I am thinking. A peasant in Kostroma province in November 1927 described his location thus Far away from Moscow, the heart of the Republic, in the thick forests and ravines of our abandoned and poverty stricken village. Footnote 116. Such peasants were gripped by a desire to acquire political development and to understand the world, to have literature and leadership, to have an education and to destroy all the nonsense that has been drummed into our heads. They feared that otherwise they would become surplus to requirements in the new order. Even the millions who did not respond to the Soviet project with any warmth internalized its categories of cultured and backward revolutionary and reactionary. NEP saw a steady rise in censorship, in curbs on intellectuals, and in outright suppression of cultural activity of which the state disapproved. Nevertheless, cultural revolution, as practiced in these years, saw groups and individuals take spontaneous initiatives and make their own experiments in living a socialist way of life and many state-sponsored initiatives – in literacy, the popularization of science, revolutionizing daily life – evoked a positive response in the population, mainly among the younger generation. Undoubtedly, a totalitarian potential existed within the project of cultural revolution – Yet we have seen that society retained sufficient autonomy in these years to resist the efforts of the state to impose its designs. It was only with the first five-year plan that a more sweeping conception of cultural revolution took hold, one that entailed an onslaught on religion and an attack under the banner of proletarian principles on cultural pluralism, academic hierarchies, and all forms of intellectual activity deemed to be bourgeois. The Attack on Religion Some contemporary ethnographers argued that the immense socio-economic disruption and psychological strains engendered by the revolution revitalized archaic elements in popular culture that had been undergoing erosion since the 19th century. Footnote 117. In July 1924, reports from drought stricken provinces noted a marked revival of religious sentiment. In the Don Oblast, there were rumors that Elijah the prophet had appeared to some peasant children, and in the village of Giblovka in Podolsk, a priest encouraged the digging up of corpses to which the villagers then prayed for rain. Footnote 118. In a village near Nadezhdinsk in the Orals, Ivan Tomovievich Taushankov, which had served in the Tsarist army and then joined the Red Army, helped set up a party cell and a reading room in his native village. His wife, who was unhappy at his joining the party, had their child secretly baptised and insisted on keeping the household icons on display. In a report of 1929, Ivan despaired of his fellow villagers, many of whom, to judge by their surnames, were his relatives. Quote, Here the priests are hard at work and nothing is heard of our party or of anti-religious work. You hear only about wizards and of how someone has injured a cow or cut off the tail of a heifer or shorn a sheep or infected the vegetables with clubroot. Last Lent, our peasants held a carnival for ten days. After the celebrations, comrade Maxim Prokovevich Toshankov, chairman of the village Soviet, called a meeting of all men and women, old and young, and when everyone had arrived, he suggested to the owner of the building, V.G. Toshankov, that he light the icon lamp and put candles in front of the icons and then he gave a report about how wizards have been organising thefts of milk and proposed that everyone pray and then curse all living things within their homes. It turned out that there were two old women who did not come to the meeting, and now everyone reckons they are the witches since there have been no more incidents. Footnote 119 Until 1917, the Orthodox clergy had guarded against forms of popular religiosity that they considered excessive or superstitious. With the fracturing of the hierarchy, popular religiosity flourished uncontrolled. At the time of the seizure of church valuables in 1922, on which more below, a wave of discoveries of self-renewing icons occurred. One such discovery in Chambarsky county in Tambov province was described by a member of the county committee of the Bolshevik party. Quote, On the 12th of February, 1922, I personally saw the renewed icon of Jesus. The local people say that the icon was shabby, but that in three to four hours it became covered with gold. Citizen Nikolai Demin, to whom the icon belongs, is 26 to 27 years of age. He insists the icon renewed itself. This is what everyone believes. The reappearance of drought in 1924 engendered a new wave of icon renewals in the Black Earth provinces of southern Russia. In Tambov, at least 1,000 renewals were reported in the course of the year, and there were similar numbers in the provinces of Orel and Voronez. Footnote 120. The authorities were foxed by this phenomenon, reaching for an explanation in terms of social stress, nefarious counter-revolutionary activity, or amateur psychology. The Provincial Food Supply Committee spoke of a, quote, mass psychosis among the dark peasant masses caused by the drought and partial harvest failure." The provincial party committee added that the mass religious psychosis was being whipped up by the surreptitious agitation of priests, nuns, and others. Such phenomena may be understood as an assertion of faith a time when the church was under assault from the regime and when the church itself had succumbed to schism, encouraged by the political police. In February 1922, against the background of the famine in the Volga region, the Bolsheviks ordered the church to give up ecclesiastical treasures to aid famine victims. The previous year, Patriarch Tikhon, had urged people to donate articles to the starving, but had exempted sacramental vessels. In March, in Shuya, a textile town to the northeast of Moscow, police and soldiers seized such vessels, provoking a sharp clash in which four members of the laity were killed and ten injured. See Figure 7.7. In private, Lenin made no pretense of the fact. That the seizures were intended to strike a blow against the authority of the church, he ordered that the Shuia insurrectionists be put on trial and that it culminate in the shooting of a very large number of the most influential and dangerous of black hundreds. A show trial ensued which resulted in the execution of eight priests, two laymen, and a laywoman, and the imprisonment of 25 others. In Petrograd, where popular agitation against the seizures had an anti-Semitic coloration, Metropolitan Vinayaman and three others were also tried and executed. It is reckoned that between 1922 and 1923 the seizure of church valuables provoked 1,414 clashes. Footnote 121. In May 1922, a group of radical priests, known as Renovationists, came out in support of Soviet power and forced the abdication of the counter-revolutionary Tikhon, whom the Bolsheviks had placed under house arrest The Renovationists called a church council the following year, which endorsed a series of reforms that had long been under discussion including the replacement of Church Slavonic with vernacular Russian, the adoption of the Gregorian calendar, and greater participation by the laity in services and diocesan administration. By 1925, two-thirds of parishes had formally affiliated to the Renovationists, not without the covert assistance of the OGPU, which actively undermined support for Tikhon. Yet the reforms were not popular with the laity, who disliked attempts to cut the number of feast days and impose a calendar that did not fit the time-honoured rhythm of the seasons, since their faith was intimately bound up with the feast days of local saints and the marking of fasts. Footnote 123. In June 1923 the Bolsheviks withdrew support from the Renovationists after Tikhon pledged loyalty to the regime. While many of the faithful questioned the patriarch's action, they were pleased to see the Renovationists get their comeuppance. By the late 1920s the Renovationists had been routed, but following the death of Tikhon in April 1925 the church was rent by other schisms, partly deepened when his successor, Metropolitan Sergei, swore fealty to the Soviet system in May 1927. From the mid-1920s, recognising that the Church was not going to buckle under pressure, the regime moderated its policy, putting the accent on anti-religious propaganda rather than full frontal attack. Official policy towards Protestant denominations and indigenous cults such as old believers who had separated from the Orthodox Church in 1666, all of which were referred to indiscriminately as Sectarians was more conciliatory, since they had been subject to discrimination under Tsarism and their emphasis on hard work, sobriety, strict moral standards and community were thought to be conducive to the formation of model agricultural communes. Footnote 124. There are no reliable figures on the number of old believers, although some put the figure as high as 20 million, and the number of Protestant and indigenous sects is estimated at anything between 6 and 10 million members. In late 1928, in Vyborg district, the heart of proletarian Leningrad, at least 12,000 people attended sectarian services, of whom over one fifth were workers. The sects were allowed to publish journals, hold conferences, and organize charities and cooperatives. Yet even in the early 1920s, the GPU kept a strict eye on them, and from April 1926, official policy became more restrictive. The mid-1920s were also the moment when policy towards Islam hardened, with mullahs depicted in propaganda as obscurantist and oppressive. The 1922-23 constitutions of the republics in Central Asia and the Caucasus had allowed considerable scope for the practice of Islam, including the practice of Sharia law, but the number of Islamic schools was steadily reduced so that by 1926 only 969 existed in the 13,650 districts in the Volga Orals region, where there was a mosque. Footnote 125 From 1926, a more frontal assault on Islamic institutions got underway. In respect of Judaism too, the regime initially acted cautiously, fearing to fan popular antisemitism. In Petrograd, the number of synagogues and prayer houses actually increased to 17. However, the Jewish sections of the party militantly counterposed Yiddish and secular culture to Hebrew religious culture, and in the mid-1920s the GPU began closing down synagogues and religious schools, and hounding rabbis. In sum, as the policy towards the Orthodox Church briefly eased, that towards other faiths hardened. From the campaign to seize church valuables in 1922 through to the all-out onslaught on religion that accompanied the Cultural Revolution, the majority view in the party leadership was that the battle against religion would be a long-term affair that would mainly centre on propaganda and education. Footnote 126. In 1922, Imelian Jaroslavsky a strong supporter of Stalin, founded a weekly newspaper, The Godless Bezboznik, to propagate atheism among the masses. The journal briefly adopted a calendar that counted the years from 1917 as year zero. In 1925 he founded the League of Militant Godless to oppose anti-religious zealots in the Komsomol, also known as priest-eaters, who reveled in offending believers by lampooning the feasts of Christmas and Easter, burning icons and books, or turning pigs loose in church. By contrast, the League favoured propaganda, including public debate with believers on such topics as whether the world was created in six days clergy invade against the militants in the anti-religious movement as debauchers and libertines, and to some extent, villagers were able to keep atheistic propaganda out of the classroom since they paid for the upkeep of the schools. By 1930, the League claimed over 2 million members, but the figure is deceptive since the organisation was badly run and internally divided. It is true that religious observance started to decline, especially in the cities where religious commitment became a matter of personal conviction rather than of communal custom, but this was due more to urbanisation, schooling, army service and the general climate of secularism than to the anti-religious campaign. One of the ironies of these years is that despite a vehement campaign to discredit and destroy all forms of religion, the Stalin faction reinscribed certain elements of popular religiosity into official political culture. The cult of Lenin was the most obvious example. Footnote 127. During his lifetime, Lenin had been adulated, but had not been the object of a cult of personality. Following his death, however, the Stalin group quite consciously sought to establish its legitimacy by sanctifying the dead leader. During the civil war, the Bolsheviks had waged a campaign to expose the popular belief that saints' bodies did not decompose. Yet Lenin's body was now embalmed like that of some latter-day pharaoh and placed in a mausoleum that instantly became a shrine. In October 1923, the Politburo, conscious that Lenin's days were numbered, discussed funeral arrangements. It is alleged that Stalin explained that certain comrades in the provinces were greatly concerned about these arrangements. Quote, They say that Lenin is a Russian and ought to be buried in accordance with this fact. For example, they are categorically opposed to the cremation, the incineration of Lenin's body. In their opinion, cremation does not at all conform to the Russian conception of love and veneration of the deceased. It could even appear to be an insult to his memory. Russians have always thought of cremation, annihilation, the scattering of the remains as the last judgement on those who have been executed. Certain comrades believe that contemporary science offers the possibility, by means of embalming, of preserving the body of the deceased for a long time. Footnote 128 The desire to preserve the leader's body physically was consonant with the orthodox belief in the inseparability of body and soul. In addition, much of the discourse following Lenin's death stressed his immortality – Lenin is with us always and everywhere – and the fact that he was the physical embodiment, the incarnation, of the revolution, terms that resonated with Christian meaning. The NEP years highlighted the vast disparity between ideal and reality. Utopian imagining flourished, visible in the hopes placed in electrification, the scientific organization of labor, and the transformation of everyday life. Yet the retreat on the economic front was a constant reminder of the backwardness and vulnerability of the nascent Soviet state. The return of the market, the revival of bourgeois social groups, international isolation, Fears of war, the increasing gap between the Soviet Union and the capitalist states, all engendered anxiety that the country was moving away from socialism. Despite the continuing idealism and energy of the regime, the tendency, especially as represented by the rising Stalin faction, was to clamp down. NEP society could by no stretch of the imagination be described as liberal yet it was more pluralistic than the brutally conformist society that was to be inaugurated in 1928 with stalin's great break epilog the great break 1928 to 1931 in november 1928 stalin declared that the soviet union must catch up and surpass The capitalist countries, otherwise they will destroy us. The previous month, the Five-Year Plan 1928-1932 had been formally inaugurated, the first example in history of a government seeking to transform an entire economy and society through planned action by the state. Under this and the second Five-Year Plan, 1933-37, the Soviet Union became a major, self-sufficient military and economic power, achieving a substantial increase in industrial output and an extraordinarily high level of investment. The first five-year plan was accompanied by a political rhetoric replete with military metaphors, with appeals to storming and target busting, and with calls to workers to show heroism and revolutionary optimism. There are no fortresses, the Bolsheviks cannot storm, Stalin declared. Yet the reality was very far from being a planned economy and a workers' state. Planners were under constant pressure to raise targets, with party officials believing that objective constraints would be overcome by feats of human will, and the result was a wasteful command economy in which enterprise directors were forced to circumvent official supply channels to fulfill their planned targets. A minority of workers believed that the socialism promised in 1917 was now being realized, and these enthusiastically supported the campaign to fulfill and over-fulfill the plan. Yet investment in industry was achieved at the expense of real wages, and most workers suffered as working conditions deteriorated severely. The majority, rather than engaging in feats of target busting, responded by going absent, by changing jobs, by drunkenness, and by indiscipline. Trade unions lost an effective right to defend workers, and the new enterprise bosses, many of them former workers, reveled in the crude display of their authority as Lazar Kaganovich said, The earth should tremble when the director walks around the plant. The other key element in the Great Break was the violent collectivization of agriculture, which solved the problem of low-grain marketing that had dogged the regime since its inception. Peasants were herded into collective farms, several million kulaks were expropriated and deported, and the traditional structures of village life and traditional patterns of farming were destroyed. The onslaught provoked intense peasant resistance. In 1930, there were 13,754 peasant uprisings. One result of the turmoil unleashed by the regime was a massive famine in 1932-33. Eventually, the regime was forced to compromise allowing private plots and a limited collective farm market alongside collectivised agriculture. But by 1936, peasant society had been drastically restructured and drastically demoralised. Without any right to a passport, the peasants were reduced to something like the condition of the peasant estate in the late 19th century. Millions moved from countryside to the tens of thousands of construction sites creating what Lewin called a quicksand society, in which social structures came under intense strain. Urban and some rural youth, more educated, less careworn, more enthusiastic, more assimilated to Soviet values than their parents, provided a cohort of supporters for socialist construction. Many struggled to better their educational qualifications to read improving literature, to acquire the prerequisites of culturedness. Children repudiated parents, spouses repudiated one another in an attempt to free themselves from the stigma of alien-class status, Komsomol and young party members became involved in driving out social aliens from their midst, bourgeois specialists were also kicked out, during the Cultural Revolution there was an intense drive to create a proletarian intelligentsia and the zealous advocates of proletarian principles were allowed to assault the proponents of more pluralistic positions. By 1931 the Cultural Revolution was over and by the mid-1930s there was evidence of a certain of party cadres, who sought to emulate in their dress, home furnishings, language and deportment a style that was considered cultured. The Great Break saw the consolidation of Stalin's autocratic rule exercised through the party and secret police. There was a resurgence of elements of traditional political culture – Stalin as father of his people. Stalin as the good tsar surrounded by evil boyars, the OGPU expanded and refined its operations through de-kulakization and mass deportations. Dissent within the party was almost completely expunged. The purge, with its probing for deviations in the biography of the party member and exaltation of confession, recognizing one's errors, entrenched itself. There was a pervasive psychology of conspiracy, an obsession with secrecy and the unmasking of hidden enemies. Ordinary people were beholden to officialdom and rendered passive, even infantilized by state power. The state would look after their every need, make up their minds for them. At the same time, they were constantly exhorted to act in the name of socialism, Despite the escalating repression, people continued to complain and write petitions and denunciations to the authorities. Sheila Fitzpatrick suggests that popular attitudes to the regime fell mainly in the range between passive acceptance and cautious hostility, but attitudes were contradictory and inconsistent. Footnote 129. There was endemic fear and fatalism, Yet many learned, in Stephen Kotkin's phrase, to speak Bolshevik, to use the official ideology for their own ends. Footnote 130. In more subliminal ways, their subjection to constant bombardment by slogans and images of a glorious future convinced millions that they were engaged in building socialism, even though the daily reality was a struggle to survive. Robert Tucker characterised the Great Break as a revolution from above, footnote 131. At first sight, this is a curious designation since the transformations were instigated by the state itself rather than being facilitated by a crisis of state power. Indeed, they led to a massive strengthening of state power. Moreover, in key respects, the Great Break Brought down the curtain on many of the radical impulses set in train in 1917, in the sphere of family, law, and the transformation of daily life, although it was certainly not lacking in radical ambition, nor indeed in an element of utopianism. Yet, insofar as the impact of crash industrialization and forced collectivization on society is concerned, The Great Break fully merits the term Revolution, since it changed the economy, social relations and cultural patterns far more profoundly than the October Revolution had done. And that's going to do it for this week. We have finished the final, main, chapter of this book and we now have the conclusion to deal with. I won't put any thoughts here just for now because this was a long chapter which ended with three pages that suggested that much more importantly was what came next and then very briefly just sprinted over it which I have some thoughts about that I'll have to settle on and come back to. I'm curious to see how the conclusion itself might fill out more of the future but I have a suspicion it might just go back to all the stuff that's been covered as a conclusion traditionally does. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can go to soundimage.org to find lots of his work there. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.